So this morning I want to talk about one of the classical teachings of the Buddha, which has always been one of my favorites. It's called the uh, Seven Factors of Enlightenment. <laughs> As many of you have uh, perhaps heard uh, this, these themes talked about, but I wanted to, I wanted to explore it uh, today and try to make also some explicit connections with our daily life practice, because it's, a, it's really a, a beautiful model that's always been um, inspiring to me. It's a model of seven qualities of our being. And th those qualities are mindfulness, uh, investigation or inquiry, effort or energy, rapture, joy, bliss, then tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. And these qualities are both the qualities of an enlightened being, or we might say ourselves, at a, ourselves when we're enlightened, which surely happens quite a bit. And they're also the qualities which we can develop, which move us towards uh, freedom, towards liberation. The Buddha talked about the qualities as being the qualities which uh, slant, slope, and incline towards liberation. <laughs> so what I'd invite you to do is to listen to this exploration of these qualities and to ask yourselves, which of these qualities have I developed pretty well in? Of these seven qualities, which ones most call out to me? And I'll talk, what I'll do is I'll talk generally some about the, the seven factors I'll talk individually about each of the seven, and then at the end, I'll talk about how to uh, connect this model with our own daily life practice. Because it's actually a very interesting, uh, almost like a diagnostic tool, and also a, a very interesting model for letting us know what, what our next steps may be, where we want to develop, and then, and then how to do so. Because in the, uh, in the traditional teachings uh, of these seven factors, there are numerous hints given for how to develop each of them. In fact, in, the, in some of the commentaries, each of them have five or ten or fifteen different um, suggestions for how to develop them. The, the um, seven factors are usually grouped in terms of uh, three different groupings. The first is mindfulness. Then there are uh, three of the factors. The, ne the, the next three are factors that are taken to be arousing or energizing factors. And the last three uh, are factors that are taken to be stabilizing. Or you might say stabilizing or grounding factors. The the, so there's mindfulness, there are the arousing factors of investigation or inquiry, effort, and rapture, and then there are the stabilizing factors of um, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. And what's very interesting 
is that one of the, one of the uses of this model <clears throat> is that it can help us to know what to do if we're feeling either in need of energy or if we have too much energy. And the, <clears throat> the, the teaching of the seven factors is very explicitly given as a way to come to a more balanced state of mind. And so we can ask ourselves, am I in need of greater energy in my practice? Then we might focus on the three arousing or energizing factors of investigation or uh, effort or, or uh, rapture. Or we might say, am I a little bit scattered? Am I sort of distracted? Am I restless? My ener- if, my, if that's the case, then my energy is in need of some of the other factors, which are more the factors of uh, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. And so it's a very useful uh, model. And what's very interesting also about the model is that what that means is that even though these are the factors of an enlightened being, they're not all useful all the time. Because some of them, so it's very helpful to know if my mind is really uh, overly restless and energized, it's actually not a good idea to develop, to, to use uh, investigation or things which give more energy. It's actually good to use the last three to apply them. And similarly, if one's mind is very sluggish, it's not so good to go further with concentration or tranquility. There you'd want to apply the more of the arousing factors. So it's very interesting that even though these are uh, so-called uh, factors of enlightenment, sometimes you want to stay away from them. And it's said that only mindfulness is always valuable. <laughs> so, so, and in fact, uh, I'll, I'll turn to mindfulness. Uh, mindfulness is the first factor, and it, it is taken to be actually a factor which in itself furthers the other factors. Uh, and so I'll talk about mindfulness and then the other factors, and I'll give kind of a thumbnail sketch of them. Each of these could deserve, you know, uh, an hour on their own, and I'll give a few minutes on each of them. And it's, you can think of it as a kind of review this is a, a, a Dharma review of some of the key qualities that we develop as we, as we practice. So mindfulness, the first factor, is really the, it's the stabilizing factor. It's the factor that uh, develops all the other qualities. As we, as we practice mindfulness, we tend to develop the other factors of investigation and inquiry and effort and rapture and so forth. So it's really the, it's really the core practice. And, and the text is talked about as the, uh, the, the factor that gives us a kind of direct path to our own learning. And it's really very, it's a very simple quality, but hard to practice. Mindful, what is mindfulness? Mindfulness is the ability to know what's happening in the present moment. That's about it despite all the thousands of pages that have been written and the endless Dharma talks, and the endless Dharma halls, all that we do in this practice could be summed up in about two or three sentences. And I'll try. <laughs> it's really this. Be mindful of what's happening. 
be aware of what's happening, and form a skillful intention in the present moment to do what's conducive towards greater freedom rather than greater suffering. That's all we do. We're mindful, and then in the present moment, we try to be wise. That's it. Everything else, as they say in the Jewish tradition, is commentary. (laughs) So I'll keep commenting. (laughs) Uh, But it's, it's helpful to know that it's that simple. And then all of what we do is we try to actually do things which help us be mindful, help us be mindful when they're difficult states, and then we learn through our study what's actually a wise intention and what's not. But it all really comes down to that, and I think it's helpful just to, to say it in that kind of focused way. So what is, what is mindfulness? If mindfulness is a clear seeing in the present moment, What do we actually do when we're mindful? We just start seeing, essentially, all of our patterns. And we see all the patterns of our minds and our hearts and our bodies. And some of them have a personal nature to them. Our own particular patterns uh, might be the patterns of planning. It might be the patterns of... um, what scares us, what excites us, what leads us to joy. We know those particular patterns. And we also become mindful of some of the more universal patterns of what it is to have a human uh, consciousness and mind in general. We start to become more aware of the nature of impermanence, the nature of change, the nature of uh, consciousness, of how we... um, the nature of language and concepts in the mind, and how we, how we um, use those or abuse those. It's to be aware of the, the very structures of the self, of our sense of there being this uh, polar opposition between self and other, between self and world. And in our mindfulness practice, we explore all that. And we learn how to explore it in a balanced way, because what mindfulness is, is a kind of, um, it's a kind of direct attention that's non-reactive and non-judgmental. And of course, a lot of what we do when we cultivate mindfulness practice is we learn how to, uh, we learn what being non-judgmental and non-reactive is. And of course, we especially learn what it means to be reactive and judgmental. In fact, we specialize in that. (laughs) Uh, And we become uh, experts in that on the way to mindfulness. It's one of the the interesting things about mindfulness. When we practice mindfulness, especially when we begin, we're not very mindful, but we learn a thousand ways that we're not mindful. And that's what our and that's normal. So if that's what you're experiencing, if you're experiencing a thousand ways that you're not mindful, you're you're doing very well. <laughs> <laughs> and so and so we can keep on. Uh, I love the 
way that mindfulness is talked about uh, or is exemplified in the Chinese uh, pictogram. The, chi- the, the pictogram that uh, is the Chinese translation uh, of mindfulness, you know, I guess from the, uh, from the Sanskrit or, or Pali, is, uh, has three different characters. So one of them is present moment, and the other one is a combination of heart and home. And so I, I've mentioned this before, but I love that quality of mindfulness as finding a home in our heart in the present moment and, be, and being able to live there. It's a very uh, beautiful image. Would that the English word mindfulness had such connotations? <laughs> you know, and some people have actually tried to translate mindfulness differently. Have it, you know, one, one friend translated it as heartfulness. Another one translated as mind heartfulness, you know, to, to avoid the separation of mind and heart, which we tend to do in our culture. Uh, and so it's a, it's a very wonderful uh, quality. And as we do the practice in, in the classical training, we learn how to develop that kind of awareness uh, classically, first with the body and breath. We also learn how to explore uh, what, what are called feelings or feeling tones, the qualities of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral as they appear in our experience. We, we especially can be aware of the parts of our experience which really hook us. And generally when we have pleasant or unpleasant experiences, they tend to, they tend, if we're not mindful, to lead to wanting and grasping on the one hand and not wanting and pushing away on the other. And those, uh, of course, in their extreme form, are connected with greed on the one hand and hatred and and even harming others on the other. So we try to really be careful in this uh, second aspect of mindfulness with the feeling or feeling tones. We try to be aware of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral to start to get uh, some awareness of what, what can take us away, what can uh, take us away in wanting and in the extreme form greed or in not wanting and having aversion in the extreme form hatred or harming or even even killing in the extreme form. And we also work with the different qualities of our mind, uh, the, the thoughts, the emotions, and we work finally in the uh, classical training, the fourth foundation of mindfulness, are, are the general patterns of our experience that we find, the patterns of there being um, impermanence of experience and the, the patterns that we find concentrated around, uh, around a self and so forth. So mindfulness in this model of the seven factors is sort of an all-purpose factor. And it's, again, if you're if you're in your daily life practice and you're confused about what to do and you're working with the factor, the seven factors, the seven factors model, and you say, okay, I'm, I'm feeling sluggish, but not so sluggish, but what, which factor should I use? Well, when in doubt, be mindful. This is something to remember, actually. When in doubt, be mindful is always, is always good advice. So the second factor 
the second factor of these seven is the first of the so-called energizing or arousing factors, and it's the factor of investigation. The, the Pali word is dhamma-vichaya. It's sometimes translated also as inquiry. And it has to do really with being able to see things more clearly, to identify exactly what's happening in the moment, and also to be able to look more deeply, to, to go deeper into experience. To be able particularly to go beyond the more discursive way of understanding our experience and see more intuitively. Um, investigation and inquiry have always been some of my favorites. You know, I, I, I love, uh, and it, it, it's really um, connected with a kind of deep and sincere wish to know what's happening. And so you could use investigation or inquiry, we can use that, for example, when we're confused in a moment of our, of our lives. You know, when we're, maybe when we're troubled, when something has bothered us, when there is um, some confusion. We, it's that time that we can use some kind of investigation and inquiry. And we can actually use, uh, sometimes even use questions. I mean, it's like you might say that the mantra of investigation would be, what's happening? <laughs> you know, what's happening in the moment? And it's a great practice to do, you know, when you're, when I'm at a meeting and, you know, suddenly there's been some swirl and all this, you know, and I just, it's really good to check in internally and say, what's happening? That's a kind of investigation. And we can also uh, do a kind of investigation that's, um, that goes more deeply. We can, we can use uh, investigation and inquiry to start with a surface appearance of some experience and really go deeper and be with our bodies and with our hearts and really see sometimes what's beneath an experience. Do you know how so often we have something else that's really bothering us or motivating us than what appears on the surface? We, we know this especially with other people, you know. You know what is what is behind that person's being so aggressive or nasty? And often there is something else there, and it's the quality of investigation that can really uh, help us go more deeply, that can help us really uh, see what's there. Some, so one, one tool that I love to do, and it depends on the mind being somewhat quiet, is when there's something that's really uh, difficult or distressing, and particularly, I think, I, I think working with um, difficult experiences to go deeper is one of the most powerful ways to use uh, investigation. So, for example, if I have some troubling emotion or thought, uh, first of all, I can notice it with mindfulness and not go off in some habitual pattern, some reactive pattern. And then if I'm conscious enough to be mindful, I can then ask myself, okay, what's happening? And I can let the thoughts go around and be quiet, and then I can sort of sink into the heart and the body and say, what's happening? And not try to figure it out so much, but to just listen carefully. Just to listen. 
You know, it's something like in the, um, do you know the figure of Kuan Yin, the great Bodhisattva of compassion? Kuan Yin is taken to be the person who listens to the cries of the world. And there's, I think this quality of listening is very closely connected with investigation. The ability to listen externally to others, the ability to listen to the world, to nature. It's like the Tibetan teacher Milarepa. If you see woodblock prints or, or tankas of Milarepa, the usual way that he appears is like this, with his hand cupped to his ear, just listening. That's investigation. You know, it's listening for what's deeper. And it takes somewhat of, a, somewhat of a quiet mind to do that. I think that one has to learn how to distinguish between uh, discursive figuring out, which in which the case the mind would be very uh, noisy and active, and the uh, quality of investigation. I think that's why investigation really best happens when the mind is somewhat balanced. So in terms of the kind of technique I was describing, it's really valuable to have the mind get quiet somewhat before we try to go too deep, because then otherwise it will get it'll tend to get merged with our with our thinking process too much. So in the uh, commentaries, it's said that there are many many ways of uh, deepening the quality of investigation. One is to ask really good questions. You might say it's, it's a willingness to make a fool of oneself. Because you, you know when you ask questions, how many times do you just try to make sure you're not making too much of a fool of yourself, especially in public situations, right? So part of the quality of investigation is the willingness to dare being a fool. And it's to really to ask sincere questions. It's also said that People do good investigation when they keep general cleanliness. It says this. <laughs> and maybe it has to do with the, 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 the sense of deep investigation needs to come out of a state of balance and maybe of some, some degree of, of common order uh, to really go deeply. In a lot of these uh, advice for for uh, how to develop the factors, it's talked about uh, having good friends is one of the main ways to develop these factors, and particularly to develop investigation. In fact, in the commentaries to, to the, the teaching, it said that there are two primary ways to develop these factors. One is mindfulness, that's the internal, fact, internal cause, and the external cause is good friends. And so it has this very, very special role in this teaching. Do, do you know the, the teaching where uh, Ananda asked the Buddha, you know, uh, Buddha, um, I've been thinking, you know, and, and, and the Buddha said yes. <laughs> and Ananda says, good friends are very important to the spiritual path, to the holy life. They're at least half of it. And the Buddha said, more or less, not quite right, Ananda. Good friends are the entirety of the holy life. Good friends are central. And so in these teachings of these seven factors, 
it's actually strongly recommended that if you want to develop in the factors that you find people who um, embody or manifest the qualities at stake and hang out with them. You want to develop investigation, find people who really inquire deeply. You know, I know I learned a lot of it. One of my teachers for many years was Christopher Titmus, who I think is one of the teachers here who most has developed uh, inquiry. And it really, um, it really catches. So you can think of this, uh, think of, you want to develop investigation and inquiry, find friends who look deeply and ask deep questions and hang out with them. It also says, the, the other side of this, if you want to develop investigations, don't hang around with fools. <laughs> I think it's not specified further what, what, <laughs> what kind of fools. So the third, the third um, factor, the second of the arousing factors, is effort or energy. And it's, it's um, really important. I know as a, I think I, I um, have mentioned as a teacher, what I most value in anyone is the effort level. You know, I don't care so much what level the person's at, what their background is. It's mostly is their sincere effort. Because in a way, if there's sincere effort, everything else takes care of itself. And it's a way that you can actually really um, have some peace of mind and rest. If you know, it's, it's the way that we, if we know that we've been doing our best, whatever happens, there's a kind of peace, isn't there? Do you know that, do you know that quality? That if, we've, if we know that we've put out sincere effort, that it's really, there, there can be, I think we should know that there can be a kind of a, a resting in that, an equanimity, a peacefulness. In the, um, in the text, effort is talked about uh, in a lot of different ways. And one of the main ways it's talked about is this uh, somewhat uh, complicated way uh, that there are four kinds of effort. One of them is avoiding unarisen, unwholesome. Do you remember that one? Yeah. <laughs> avoiding unarisen, unwholesome states, abandoning arisen, unwholesome states, developing unarisen, wholesome states and maintaining arisen wholesome states. And I so much love that one of the people in my, one of my meditation groups is a kayaker. And she reframed these four kinds of effort in terms of kayaking in a way that makes, is, is more accessible, I think that you might say. And, and th those four guidelines, completely translating those four were, the first one, avoiding unarisen unwholesome states means stay out of trouble. <laughs> And, and this is actually what effort's about. Stay, stay out of danger areas. That a major part of effort is to watch out for where you, where you go. That's effort. It's actually effort to stay out of trouble. And as a kayaker, that's quite important. Stay out of certain kinds of rapids. You know, for us it might be stay out of certain conversations or be careful with certain stimuli. You know, the second kayaking guideline is um, uh, know what to do if you get in trouble, which is the same as abandoning unarisen, unwholesome states. It means know what to do, uh, know what to do when you get in trouble, or basically know how to get out of trouble. 
So the first one is stay out of trouble. The second one is know what to do and be able to get out of trouble. And it sounds like more straightforward English, but it's actually, it's actually, I think, a tremendously central part of our practice. What do you do when you find yourself with a very distraught mind? What do you do when you find yourself, um, whatever, depressed, angry, in a very hostile way, um, self-judgmental, caught up in resentment, what do you do? And it, it's really um, one of the art forms that I think meditation becomes is when we know how to do that well. When we know how to... I, what I like to do is I like to take a moment of distress as a starting point for practice and have that little bell come into my mind. Oh, and it, sometimes it takes a while, right? <laughs> moment of distress. Oh. Practice. <laughs> and that's, uh, that's the second aspect of effort. The third aspect of effort in the kayaking vocabulary is, what is it? It, <laughs> it is uh, develop good habits. Do your training. And so this is the same as developing unarisen wholesome states. In other words, uh, develop qualities that you may not have uh, developed so much. And the last one is essentially, it's the same as maintain arisen wholesome states. It means keep the good stuff going. Know what your good qualities are and keep them going. Keep your, if you have good mindfulness, compassion, keep, keep them moving, keep them going. And so effort is really framed uh, in these four ways. And in the, in the uh, commentaries, it's said that there are a number, of, a number of ways that we can really develop that effort. Mindfulness and wise attention is the central dimension of our, of our uh, development of effort. Also very significant for effort are moderation with food and sleep. These are mentioned. Carefulness, I think, with it's basically carefulness with food, sleep, and the stimuli that we take in, that these will have an actually very significant effect on our, on our level of effort. If we're overly busy or overly stimulated, we may not have so much energy or effort to, to bring to practice. And it's also said in terms of friends, hang out with friends who are very energetic. <laughs> Find your energetic friends and be careful of your lazy friends. Now, once you've developed these qualities to a high degree, it's okay to hang out with lazy people all the time. <laughs> uh, but if you're on the way to developing, you have to, have to be careful. So the fourth, the fourth quality, the fourth of these seven factors is rapture. It's also the... Uh, the Pali word is piti, P-I-T-I, and it's sometimes translated as uh, joy or delight. And it's, it's really this wonderful quality I think many of us have touched in our practice, part of which maybe keeps us uh, coming back, which is to, it ranges all the, rapture ranges all the way from having chills or goosebumps to having the body suffused with this joyful energy 
with this powerful uh, energy to the point where we sometimes see the world in a very different way. Where we see the world maybe not so much in terms of these separate beings, but in terms of this uh, blissful, interconnected complex of joyful energy. What a wonderful way to see the world. And this is something that's opened up by the quality of rapture. I was thinking that um, what would happen if our politicians could experience the world as a joyful, interconnected, uh, energetic body of bliss? And I'm, they don't talk about it so much, so I'm assuming they don't experience so much. But I may be wrong. <laughs> but I mean, it, it, what I, I guess what I'm pointing to is that it really gives a very different sense of self, and it's something which gives, uh, can give tremendous delight, and even, um, even a certain kind of healing takes place in that kind of rapture, in that kind of, in that kind of peace. There are also quite a number of ways to develop rapture. The main one is actually mindfulness. It's, again, a, a natural outcome of being, being mindful. Uh, other ways to develop that quality of rapture are, that are given classically are to think of the qualities of the Buddha. And you might generalize this to mean think of the qualities of very wonderful or noble people. And it might be that, you know, and I think we experience this sometimes, I experience this sometimes in, in seeing films of the lives of wonderful people or, some, or really a lot of art and, and wonderful film that tells me about inspiring lives. Do you know how that sometimes just, you, you feel chills going up and down your spine? That's, that's the quality of rapture that's developed. And it's said that... Uh, a lot of different ways to, that we get inspired, whether it's by uh, beings or, or people that really inspire us, or I think actually also by artwork or by uh, certain literature. Do you know how you hear certain poems and you're just, your mind comes to a standstill and, you're, and there's, there's this sense almost of rapture flooding oneself? So... Read those poems. <laughs> Read those poems a lot. Um, find friends who experience a lot of rapture. <laughs> it's, it's said in the text, avoid coarse people. I don't know whether this means not to spend a lot of time you know, with people who watch football games. And remember that, that it might. Uh, but... but I'm sure there's a lot of rapture. <laughs> there actually is a lot of rapture in sports at times. But uh, uh, it's also, one of the guidelines also given is to reflect, to, to use um, spiritual texts as a guide to rapture. Again, it can, it can, and that which inspires us inclines us towards rapture. And I know I've had the experience often, uh, about a year or two ago, I wanted to read the entire Majima Nikaya. And I read, they're, they're, um, they're the middle-length sayings of the Buddha, and they're about, um, most of them are about 5 to 15 pages long. They're about 150 texts. And I read about one or two a day. And it's almost like the text would take me into the world of practice. And I would sometimes feel that inspiration and even kinds of rapture just from reading the text. 
And so it's something to remember as a tool if you're, if you're wanting more of that rapture. So the fifth, sixth, and seventh qualities are tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. And these are the factors that help with uh, stability or uh, a kind of uh, grounding. Tranquility is the, is the quality of calm. It's the quality of, of stillness. It's the way that our mind is no longer restless. It's said that the, <clears throat> the quality of, of stillness or tranquility occurs when the, the famous five hindrances of stronger compulsive desire or aversion, sloth and torpor, restlessness, and some kind of restless doubt, which are talked about in Buddhist practice, when those are no longer present, the mind is, the mind is tranquil. When there's no longer that compulsive wanting or pushing away, when we're just calm and everything is more or less okay. And there's a beautiful poem which I wanted to read, which uh, brings that out. It's by the uh, Nobel Prize winning poet, uh, I think I'm pronouncing this right, Czechlaw Milos, who, li- who lives in Berkeley. He wrote this poem called Gift. I think it's about the gift of tranquility. A day so happy, fog lifted early, I worked in the garden. Hummingbirds were stopping over honeysuckle flowers. There was nothing on earth I wanted to possess. I knew one, I knew no one worth my envying him. Whatever evil I had suffered, I forgot. To think that I was once the same man did not embarrass me. In my body, I felt no pain. When straightening up, I saw the blue sea and sails. a kind of contentment and calm. And in terms of the guidelines for helping to develop that, that uh, factor of tranquility, mindfulness, again, the, the core factor which leads in this direction. Also an emphasis on being careful with food. You know that certain kinds of food do not lead towards tranquility. Um, it's said that to help with tranquility, it's good to live in a um, beneficent climate. Choose your climate well. So I, I, I think I won't say any more about that because we got a pretty good climate here if, you're, if you live here. And to, um, it's said that you sh- to develop tranquility, you should avoid socializing with louts. <laughs> Find calm and kind friends. Find, find louts. Louts are the ones, that's the translation. <laughs> the, the sixth quality is concentration. And it's, it's also a very fundamental quality. It's the quality of concentration that actually lets us taste the deeper qualities of the mind and the heart and the body. And when our minds get concentrated, we temporarily at least, don't experience those, those five hindrances. When the mind's very concentrated, it's much harder to have some kind of compulsive desire or aversion. It's almost to be concentrated is the antithesis of being very restless. And so it's a very, very central uh, quality because it helps, us to, um, it helps us to taste our deeper potential, you might say. 
concentration is really the ability to focus on what's before us. It might be an object, it might be our whole experience. It's that ability to be fully present. And I like the translations of the, you know, the um, Pali Sanskrit word is samadhi, as many of you know. And it's usually translated as concentration. And I think I like, it also has the connotations, and sometimes I like the translations better, of collectedness or composure. It's a notion of really being unified, being together, having our energy. And there's a way that we can have a somewhat uh, disembodied concentration. You know, like I think maybe, maybe what we experience with, uh, on, the, on the computer is a little bit different form of concentration, I think, because it's, it's actually a little bit disembodied. And the kind of concentration that I think we are getting at here is really the whole body. Because I know, and it really, I think it can be a misuse of meditation to have somewhat of a, like a laser-like concentration on an object rather than a total meeting of one's being with the object. I think, I think that's an important point to, to avoid. I know for myself, I got into all sorts of problems by having this more narrow laser focus concentration. And I think one has to learn how to be with something with one's whole, with one's whole being more. And there really are uh, two kinds of concentration. One of them is with the, um, with just with one object. And the other one is with, again, with whatever is coming before our experience. And we can, and with either of them, the, the qualities of concentration or samadhi or that of being non-distracted, totally focused. It's said that one is totally face-to-face with the object or face-to-face with experience. You know, and it's this wonderful experience that I think, you know, do you, have, you know those experiences when you're totally immersed I think that we experience this like with movies especially, right? Totally immersive so that you're right there or that you're right totally with what you're doing. It's really a beautiful, it's a beautiful quality. And, but the important thing to remember about concentration is that even though it can take us into very amazing states and can be very peaceful, it's not the same as wisdom. And we often make that confusion that one can be deeply concentrated and sort of cover over one's delusion with concentration. And when one's no longer concentrated, guess what? The delusion's right back there. Many of us experience this by going to retreats (laughs) and being very concentrated. And then after the retreats, you know, I remember when I was first practicing, I was very distraught because I had I had have this wonderful calm and peace. I thought very wise. Then I go back and fight with my roommate, and I said, "What? You know? And you know, wasn't I supposed to have resolved all these things forever?" <laughs> but it was more that the concentration temporarily suppresses some of what's there, and it's only the quality of wisdom and clear seeing, which really, as it were, can can by constant uh, mindfulness and awareness and seeing uh, work through the, um, the confusions. To be concentrated, uh, again, some of these guidelines, um, avoid distracted people, <laughs> uh, and be with people who are focused if you want to develop concentration. Hang around, again, hang around people who have samadhi. 
It's said also that, again, uh, again, this is text from 2,000 years ago, it's said that cleanliness is very helpful for concentration. I think it has to do with that kind of order. I know for me, sometimes when I really want to focus on some work, I have to clean up my place, right? I have to clean up, you know, I think all of you know this, right? That a certain degree of cleanliness and order is very vital. Otherwise, the mind sort of takes in the external environment and gets distracted. Uh, it's also said that developing balance is very helpful for concentration. Uh, if you want to be concentrated, it's also said, you, if, if you're discouraged, learn how to um, be uplifted when you're discouraged, and that can help with concentration. And if you're overly enthusiastic, calm down a little bit, and that helps. You can't be very concentrated when you're you know, totally excited about something. So the last quality, it's, it takes a while to go through seven of these factors, so thanks for, thanks for staying with me. Um, the last quality is, is equanimity. And in a way, I, I like to think of equanimity in terms of these factors. It's like the rudder. It's all the, these other factors have different uh, qualities and properties, but equanimity is really the ability to, to keep balance with whatever's happening. It's, it's, it's one of my favorite of these factors because it's, uh, it's a very, it's a very um, interesting quality because it's, um, it's a state of being very balanced with whatever's happening, uh, being very even with what's ever happening, but it also is connected with a deep seeing. You can only be really equanimous when there's a lot of understanding of patterns. Uh, and so equanimity is the fruit of seeing patterns clearly. You know, and for me this means uh, looking at things which often which trouble me a lot. And when I look at them enough, I start seeing the patterns. And I start, especially with friends or with people I interact with a lot, after a while, I think, you know, some of us learn that the same patterns keep on happening. And we have the choice of either getting upset every time or maybe seeing, maybe trying out another strategy. You know, and it's, it's actually, doesn't mean we don't try to change things. But I mean, I, I've learned this from actually painfully from difficult interactions with people at work and with people I'm close to. And it's, there's something about equanimity which only comes from having looked deeply at the patterns. You know, and we can apply this also to our government. You know, uh, that we, that it, we get, many of us don't even probably like to read the papers these days, right? Because it's just one horror story after another. And, and yet, can't, you know, I, I truly think that deep, uh, d- deep ability to change depends on equanimity. Depends on seeing the patterns clearly enough. And I also, equanimity, I do not think is contrary to wanting things to change. That's where it gets so interesting and even paradoxical. That there's a quality of equanimity which is right there, it's okay, we're not reactive, and yet we can still be compassionate and respond to, to greed, hatred, and delusion. I could say a lot more about that, but, I'm, but I think I won't right now, maybe, maybe in the questions. In the classical text it said, 
If you want to develop equanimity, don't hang out, don't hang around with people who go crazy. <laughs> find, <laughs> find, instead, find friends who are cool. Uh, develop, you know, I, I think actually the, the main way to develop equanimity is mindfulness practice. It's really because in the moment-to-moment -moment mindfulness practice, we see where we're reactive. We watch it. We see how we, we see how we function. And we learn how to be non-reactive. This is what mindfulness practice is about. It's learning how to be non-reactive, learning how to be okay with what's happening, even if it's difficult. So I wanted to close just by talking about how to apply this to our, to our practice, because it's a really interesting model. First of all, we can ask ourselves, in the going through these seven factors, which of them called out to me as one which I want to develop the most? And it's a very interesting, because it's an interesting, I think it's a very um, full model. And we can, we can ask her, and this isn't necessarily what rationally I think I should develop, but what intuitively calls out to you to be developed. I had a very interesting experience working with this model with someone in, in one of my um, meditation groups. And he was, um, he was, for quite a while, feeling like he wanted to, he was unclear about how to prioritize things in his life. And he really had a sense that he needed to be clearer about his core intentions. And when you look at the seven factors, you might think, oh, I need to investigate more. I need to figure out, think out, reflect on what my priorities were. When we worked with this model of the seven factors, he felt intuitively drawn not to investigation, but to concentration, which was very interesting because it wasn't like the direct way to solve his problems. But it was what intuitively he felt drawn to. And when we step back a little bit, we can see because, yeah, it's as if it were when he was more distracted, it was hard actually to know what he really wanted. When the mind got more concentrated, which he felt drawn to, then he could actually see more clearly. And so I think it's a very interesting practice to ask ourselves, where are we drawn here? Which of, these, which of these factors are we drawn to? And then we can also, in terms of our practice, use this model to help us in daily life. Again, mindfulness is always useful, but we can also ask ourselves, where do I stand in terms of being either on the sluggish side or on the overly excited side. And if we find that we're on one side or the other, we can use some of the factors that uh, balance out where we are at. So we can actually have a little more skill. We can, as it were, be our own meditation teacher. We can, because a lot of, that's a lot of what meditation teachers would do. They would look at someone and get a sense of where there was a need for more balance. That's a, that's a lot of, you were asking the question about teachers, that's a lot of what teachers do. They just have a, or therapist, you just have an intuitive feel where it's good to give some energy. Well, you can do this yourself with this model. You can ask yourself, 
Am I primarily sluggish or am I primarily overly excited or, or restless or overstimulated? If so, which of these factors would I want to develop? And then you can ask, and how would I develop them? What things to do? And it can really give some impetus to one's own practice to do that. Um, Maybe I'll, I'll, I'll end there with just reminding us that it's mindfulness which really helps us to know what's happening and sets in motion this particular teaching. It's really to know to know that that's going on. So I'll thank you. I talked a little longer than I wanted to. That sometimes happens. But um, there were seven factors, and I wanted to do them all. <laughs> so thank you very much. Please. Yeah. Um, you said something that I don't know if I'm interpreting correctly. Yeah. It has a great deal of meaning to me right now in terms of trying to make a decision and you and, yeah. and the mindfulness move towards something that would create more freedom than suffering. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, yeah. I don't know if there's anything more to say about that, but that really speaks to something that I'm dealing with right now. Yeah, it was. It was where I tried to really give that crystallized account of what our practice is about, if I remember, which which is that um, we, a lot of what we do in our practice is really to be mindful, know what's happening in the moment, and have some space of freedom to choose what's skillful in the moment. And that was my way of crystallizing the practice. And we do that by trying to be clear about our intentions. And we, we come to see that certain intentions are skillful and move towards freedom, and other ones uh, keep us caught. So, so the emphasis was there on really being aware of intentions. That's a, I, last time I was here, I talked about intentions and intention practice, but it's really to uh, try to be, try to watch our intentions carefully. Mm. Does that help, Susan? Yes, thank you. Okay. Oh, mine is in the form of an announcement, so I'll end with me. Yeah, okay, please. In talking about sincere effort, um, yeah. toward the end you mentioned moderation in food and sleep. Yeah. And, um, I feel fortunate in having more space in my life than I have in the past. Yeah. Uh, almost like a, a luxury. But um, into that space oftentimes arises uh, feeling overwhelmed with how many uh, things I could or should be doing, including furthering my own meditation practice. Um, And sleep oftentimes arises as a um, a respite, Mm -hmm. but also I have the suspicion a Mm cop-out. And I was wondering if you could say something more about moderation and sleep can come from two directions. Um, 
too much or too little and we're seeking the mm-hmm. middle path there. Mm-hmm. So sometimes taking a nap, mm-hmm. taking a nap or just relaxing and um, can uh, really be very refreshing. Mm-hmm. But other times I'm right back where I started mm-hmm. feeling overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. <coughs> yeah, no, it's a great question. I think, did everyone hear the question? Yeah, I mean, it's a, I think it's a, it's a question for our times. We are, I think, more overworked and overstimulated, certainly in this culture, than we were 30, 50 years ago. I mean, that's pretty well documented. So it's not just a personal issue. Uh, but we all have to deal with this, you know. Does anyone remember when there were no emails? <laughs> uh, so... I, I would tend to, where I would want to go with this is actually to focus a little bit more on the being careful with the overstimulation than actually focusing on the sleep, because the sleep may be a way of you trying just to take care of being so overstimulated. So in terms of where you have some conscious control, and it's not easy, I would go towards seeing if there are ways that you can lessen some of the stimulation or not quite be so overwhelmed. Some of it is actually choosing and prioritizing what's really important. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting now. Uh, I'm, I'm working on a book now, and it leads me to really, I, I write every morning, except for this morning. <laughs> and it, it's a very focused life, and it has its it has its joys and its sorrows, you might say. But it's a very focused thing, and I just constantly say no to a lot of things. And there's something that's very satisfying and not even very usual about that. Because I think that we, in, especially in the Bay Area, you know, there are so many friends, for most many of us, so many people, so many events, so many things, a lot of them edifying in their own right, right? And so we, I think that that focus is, is, is where I would go with, uh, with that. And, and in terms of the sleep, I think you have to just uh, explore that. You know, see, you know, it's also seeing, I think, learning to discriminate what part of our tiredness is from a need for sleep and what part of our tiredness is from stress and energy imbalance. Is that okay? Or did, can you do your question really quickly? Really quickly. Okay, and this will be the last one. Sometimes sleep is an escape mechanism also. Yeah. We need to escape from whatever is going on around yeah. us. Because I know a few people that do that. Yeah. So uh, we have to realize, it. is it something that we're trying to really run away from? Yeah. Or is it something that we need to do at the moment? Yeah. And it's something, it's really some, this is where investigation would come in. And I know for me and for probably for many of us, when we do retreats, especially long retreats, exploring sleep and how much we sleep and why we sleep and when we sleep and when we, when we take naps. I remember my first retreat that I ever did, I thought that it was going to be so hard that I, I always, I took naps, I went to bed early just so my energy wouldn't be depleted. And it was, and over time, I came to see that I didn't need to do that. That there were some different ways of resting. 
<clears throat> so I think in, in retreats, it's a wonderful way to, to explore a lot of both moderation in sleep and moderation in food. So thanks for the question. So thanks for your patience for staying a little late. Let's just close with a reflection and dedication of merit. So if something has touched you from the morning, from your sitting or from the talk and discussion, let that be present. Something on these seven factors of enlightenment and how you might apply them in your life. Mindfulness, investigation, effort, rapture, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. And if there's some intention that comes out of the morning that you want to act on, let that be present. So we, we dedicate the merit, the fruits, the value, the learning, the insights of the morning. We dedicate that to the well-being, the benefit, the awakening of all beings, knowing that we practice not just for ourselves, but for all others. May all beings awaken. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.